Tonight we talk about bearing one another's burdens in the body of Christ, uh, which is a way to say the absolute necessity of the gospel to live out what God calls us to. Um, I, I was thinking of that um, C.S. Lewis quote, everybody thinks forgiveness a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. And I think the same could be true of community. Everybody thinks community a lovely idea um, until they see what the Bible says it's really about. Um, in a consumer culture like the one we live in, a lot of people think that community is a commodity dispensed by the church. And if you don't find it, sort of handed to you on a silver platter, um, then you may move on and try to find it somewhere else. As a matter of fact, college is one of those kind of deceptively dangerous times because in some ways, and now some of you are gonna be like, no, I've never been more lonely, but in some ways, like community is easier than it will be in the next stage of your life. Like when you get out of college, you have to make even more effort to meet people and to find people um, to be friends with. And you have less time, you have to be more intentional. And um, one of the things that can happen in college is if minor offenses happen, you can kind of quickly move on to another group of people and sort of build this pattern in your life of never having to really work through things. And, um, and so be careful, watch out for that. Um, you know, community is about bearing burdens, at least if it's going to last for long. And, and what Paul calls us to here, what God calls us to here, um, is pretty countercultural for kind of Western modernist kind of people who tend to have individualism as our context, and then we try to get as much community as we can without giving up like the core basis upon which we live, which is filtering everything through what is it in it for me, right? So I, I think, you know, sometimes when I think about preaching, I think about what is going to be difficult about receiving a particular passage or teaching from God's word. Sometimes it's, it's hard to understand. Um, more often, it's hard to embrace. And um, I think this is one of those that's harder to embrace. Um, but let's pray, and then we'll, we'll read this passage and dig into this. Uh, Lord, we do thank you. Help us now, even as we read your word. Um, help us. Send your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is God's word, starting with Galatians chapter 5, verse 25. It's a particularly unhelpful place where the chapter markings are. I hope you know that the verse and chapter markings are not in the original text of Scripture. They're added by the translators. Um, so there are places where the chapter markings come in a really bad place. This is one of those. Um, Paul says, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, 
they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else, for each one should carry their own load. Nevertheless, the one who receives instruction in the word should share all good things with their instructor. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. We probably won't get to that last section until after spring break, but I did want to read it all together here because you can see that Paul is not just talking in Galatians about the gospel and about how we can have a right relationship with God. Actually, all through this letter, um, you see Paul's concern for the gospel to be lived out relationally. And, And really, like, A big key idea running through chapter 6 is that we are a body. That the church, that Christians are a body, not a loose confederation of individuals. And that if we really could capture this vision and really think of ourselves as a body first rather than a bunch of individuals who kind of decide how we want to associate with one another, um, it would really, I think, make it easier to understand what's coming at us here in this passage. It's really hard to live out what Paul's saying here if our goal in life is comfort. And I can tell you that from personal experience because that's my idol, is comfort. I would rather have as much comfort as I have while still like trying to obey the Bible, but not so far that it impinges on my comfort. And it doesn't really work that well. But I think the real key is to see, to see ourselves as part of the body and, and how if one person is suffering, the body is suffering. Now, where he starts is really interesting. Um, verse 25, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. And then verse 26, let us not become conceited. And you might think that that's random, except the thing is, what the Spirit wants to help us do is have a right, sober self-image. So those aren't just two random things stuck together. They actually connect. Keeping in step with the Spirit, remember I've said this several times, the, the number one priority of the Holy Spirit is to shine a spotlight on Jesus and His work, the sufficiency of His work to open your eyes to see Jesus is more beautiful and believable, that you could more fully put your trust in him and give all glory to Jesus for the work that he's done, rescued us. And and, and so to keep in step with the Spirit is to put the focus and the glory on Christ. So it goes actually right along with what he says in verse 26, right? When we are making much of what Jesus has done, it's hard to be conceited. Um, we think about, a friend of mine used to say, you know, basically what we deserve, death and hell. <laughs> and, and it's hard to be conceited when you have a proper sober sense of what you deserved were it not for God's grace. 
So let us not become conceited, provoking and envying one another. I love the old um, King James translation here. The King James says, have no vain glory. It's a compound word, vain glory. It's what the other translations translate conceited. But that's an interesting thing. What is vain glory? It means putting your glory in something that's empty. Vanity, in the sense, not vanity like you're proud, but vanity in, in, in the Bible sense, in the old King James sense, is a word that means vapor or breath. It means it has no real substance. So it's to consider something glorious that really doesn't have solidity or substance to it. That's, that's what we, now, is we are made in God's image, right? Human beings are worthy of dignity, but it's important that we don't think of ourselves more highly than we ought, or that we think of ourselves more low. The Bible regularly says that we should be sober-minded in the way we think about ourselves, not conceited, not having vain glory. And, and actually, there's a little key here um, kind of hidden in this verse, which is this. Our opinion of ourselves determines, at least affects, the way we treat others, right? When Paul wants to say that you should be loving one another, bearing one another's burdens, he starts with how you think about yourself in relation to God and the gospel. Do you see that? Like those things are always connected. Our opinion of ourselves determines how we treat others. And notice, Paul doesn't just say, be nice. He doesn't. He says, have a sober, gospel-informed view of yourself that's in keeping in step with the Spirit and what the Spirit says. The Spirit says that Jesus would rather die than live without you. Right? So you're not worthless, certainly not to the Son of God. But neither are you one who can pat yourself on the back and say, boy, God must be so proud to have me on his team. I'm so glad that I was, you know, kindly disposed to God and invited him in my heart and gave, you know, cut him a break and I should pat myself on the back for that. No, that's not right. To have a sober sense of who you are is to have a sense that Christ found you of great value. But it's not because you're so great. It's because his mercy is really astonishing. So, this brings a sober-mindedness that really affects the way we can relate to one another. But notice this as well. Paul says, let us keep in step with the Spirit. So he's not saying, I've got this figured out. You guys need to keep in step with the Spirit like me. And I think that's great. And, and so do you see how, what he says? He's like, let us keep in step with the Spirit. And then he said, let us not become conceited. That's actually a really important thing. Paul is actually, even before he talks to us about bearing burdens, he's modeling the way you confront somebody in gentleness. It's not like I've got it together and you need to come up to my level of maturity and gentleness. No, he says, let us. We all have great need. A great need. We all have it. Let us. Um, I, do, I do think, when you think about the gospel, when you think about envy, it is worth thinking, I don't know if you struggle with envy, 
Um, if you do, you're in good company because the Psalms regularly talk about envy. One of my favorite is uh, Psalm 73. This guy Asaph says, you know, Psalm 73 starts out, surely God is good to Israel. God, God is good to Israel. It's a good, true confession. But let me tell you how my feet had almost slipped. He says, for I envied the arrogant. And, and as you read carefully Psalm 73, it seems that it's the arrogant people who claim to be God's people. And the psalmist says, look, their bodies never wear out. They never struggle. Um, often envy will, will make you look at things in black and white terms. When, when you're envying, you rarely look at things with nuance. You tend to be like, man, they, it's perfect over there. They've got it together and everything bad happens to me. But as Psalm 73 goes on, he says, then I entered your sanctuary. And what happens in the sanctuary? When the sanctuary is where the sacrifices happen. And the sacrifices in Israel's worship were a foreshadowing of the gospel. And what the sacrifices did is they said, this sacrifice is what you deserve. Literally, you put your hand on the animal as it's sacrificed. It's this radical identification that, that one is going to suffer in my place. And God is teaching his people that you deserve this, but there is going to be a provision made. A substitute will be sent. He's setting them up. And so what happens when you enter into the sanctuary and you see the sacrifice is it restores your sanity. It's the Old Testament way of saying, I, 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 then I remembered the gospel. And I remembered what Jesus did for me. How can I envy how can I envy when the one who has given me what I have is the one who died in my place? See, envy is not just person to person. Envy is always connected to you feeling like God has not given you good things. And so it, envy is not just about, I want what they have. It really is a refusal to Embrace what God has for you. It, it's, it's really anger at God, but disguised as wanting stuff that other people have, right? And so the gospel is the key because you see, envy is, feeds on this suspicion that God is holding out on you. And therefore, it, it's only right that you should long for other things and do whatever you can to get other things because God isn't good. And how do we fight against that lie? Well, by looking at the cross, of course. So keeping in step with the Spirit has a direct effect on helping you not be conceited, provoking and envying each other. And the degree that the gospel is not beautiful to you, to that degree, you probably will be about provoking and envying others. But the gospel comes to do battle against your suspicion that God is not good. Now, then he gets into this next section. The, the, the way the gospel calls us to love in real, specific ways. And, and I love this. You know, he doesn't just say, love one another. He says, if someone's caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. 
And he goes on, he talks about carry each other's burdens in verse 2. And in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. And you think about this. A lot of people talk about wanting to love one another. They maybe even claim to love other people. But, But how many people would say, I love you enough, I am so committed to the health of God's body, his church, that if I'm trapped in a sin, I want you to come and restore me. See, I think it kind of goes both ways. Like, there's an exhortation for us to restore gently when we see someone trapped in a sin, but I think there's also built into this the sense that you must be the kind of person that welcomes and embraces that. Again, because of the good of the body, not just about you individually. Paul says we're to carry burdens. It means at least this, that we have burdens and that we can't carry them alone. This is, you know, a lesson that I'm still trying to learn. Your self-sufficiency, my self-sufficiency, robs the rest of the body of Christ from an opportunity to glorify God by obeying this command. Like the body of Christ doesn't work well if everybody pretends that they have no burdens. Right? Now we don't want to be a bother. We don't, we don't want to be weak. We don't want to be needy. But what God says is the body of Christ works best when we bear one another's burdens. And that's not going to happen if we pretend that we don't have any burdens. Right? I I say this often when I do weddings. Um, And I was doing premarital counseling today, so it came up once again. Um, Don't hide your sin and your brokenness from one another. Because one of the most beautiful things is for your brothers and sisters to lead you to Christ, to bear these burdens with you. The, 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 the kind of community that you long for generally comes through being weak and needing other people to be with you. And I know we wish it would come another way. <laughs> I know we wish that we could just find rich community where we could just talk about how everything's great. But it generally doesn't work that way. Now, you might say, I thought God is the one who deals with burdens. After all, maybe you know this verse in 1 Peter 5, 7, cast all your burdens on the Lord. But you know, it's interesting. You should never pit casting your burdens on the Lord against bearing one another's burdens because they actually go together. The body of Christ is one of the ways that God gives us relief from our burdens. Paul himself said this about Titus. Um, one of his kind of mentorees. It's a fabulous verse. In 2 Corinthians 7, verses 5 and 6, Paul's talking to the Corinthians, and he says, For when we came into Macedonia, we had no rest, but we were harassed at every turn, conflicts on the outside, fears within, but God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. Don't become so like super spiritual that you think all you need is God. Because the Apostle Paul said that God comforted him by sending Titus. Right? So I I do think sometimes people feel like, well, if I was really, 
you know, mature Christian, then I wouldn't need other people. I could just have God alone and that would be enough. But the Apostle Paul tells us otherwise, doesn't he? Now, it's worth mentioning this interesting thing, the way he talks about the law of Christ. It's in verse 2, carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. And, and it is interesting, like, when you look at Galatians 5 and 6, there's several places where you have these parallel expressions, and here's what it comes down to. In Galatians, loving your neighbor, bearing one another's burdens, and fulfilling the law are all parallel expressions. They're all parallel expressions. Now, I think we often think of love and we think of like heroic examples of love. But what Paul's saying here is the daily mundane bearing of burdens is how you fulfill the law of Christ. But how do you do it? How do you do it? Take them to Christ. So it, it's, it's a hard thing, bearing burdens, bearing burdens, but not being Christ. In other words, I, you know, a, a professor of mine in seminary used to say, all you really have to offer people is the word of Christ in prayer. And there is certainly a ministry of presence as well. But ultimately, you need to offer people the word of God in prayer. If you're somebody who doesn't ever really, you know, read the Bible, but you're a Christian, you know, do it for that reason, that you have something to offer to help. Now, I hope that you have other reasons, but maybe, maybe you're like, well, you know, I'm willing to starve myself, but don't starve the other people in the body of Christ that need you to be someone that can offer the word of God and prayer, bearing one another's burdens. Now, there's an interesting thing here in verse 5. I don't know if, if this struck you. Now, the translations try to make it clear, but in verse 2, it says, carry each other's burdens, and then down in verse 5, it says, everyone should carry their own load. Now, the translations try to make it clear it's actually two different words. So there's not a contradiction here. Uh, when it talks about bearing a burden in verse 2, it's talking about a heavy weight that no one can bear alone. But the word used in verse 5 refers to a day pack. That's interesting, isn't it? Now, and what Paul's saying is basically you need to be the body of Christ because there are burdens that people cannot bear on their own. However, you also need to carry your own load. Now, I'll just, I'll just say, somebody told me this years ago, and I, I've seen it many, many times. No one has the right to separate someone from the consequences of their sin. I wonder what you think about that. In other words, no one has the right to separate someone from the consequences of their sin. The people that are really good at doing that are Christian parents. And it's not easy. It's easy for me to say right now. My kids haven't gotten into any huge trouble yet, but it's probably coming. And, and, you, and you want to rescue. And yet God has ordained consequences to sin that we would know that how we live really matters. Okay? And so there is a sense here, when he says in verse 5 that you're to bear your own load, there, are, there is a responsibility for you to 
bear your own load. You don't want to, bearing burdens doesn't mean rescuing people in a way that they never have to deal with the consequences of their foolishness. And that's, that's tricky. I think it's one of the reasons why you need a community, not just one person always being the rescuer of another person with no one else to kind of give perspective or speak into the situation. And, and I will say, you know, in the last 10 years, I would say students are more likely to try and do things on their own for their friends and not involve other adults than they used to be. Um, and I just would encourage you, there are things that you probably are bearing, trying to bear, that like somebody, some, somebody needs to know about. I suspect that, because it seems to always happen. I could tell you stories, but I won't. Uh, but I'm just always amazed. I mean, it's one of the things we've kind of went from, you know, in the history of kind of the last 50 years, kind of your most significant relationship being your family to being your lover. That's kind of the modernism to now postmodern kind of where we live in your friends. Really the key. It's why so many people struggle with, you know, okay, we're really good friends. These people of an opposite sex and should we move it into a dating relationship? Man, it's great to have a dating relationship, but I sure wouldn't want to lose a friend. It's not worth losing a friend. It's just interesting. 20 years ago, people would not have, don't, didn't view it that way, right? So there's a real high kind of value placed on friendship, the most important relationship, but still, I would just encourage you, there are definitely things that, that need other people to be involved in. So think about that. Take that for what it's worth. All right. What about this whole restoring gently? Now, it's hard to do. Like, who wants to do this? I, I think it, you know, you have to find this balance. 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says, love overlooks a multitude of sin. And here in Galatians 6, uh, the same Apostle Paul says, bear one another's burdens. And if you see someone trapped in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore them gently. Now, let me just say, you who are spiritual, when the, when the um, New Testament uses that, uses spiritual as an adjective like that, it means somebody who has the Holy Spirit. It doesn't mean you who are super Christians, right? It's tied in with bear one another's burdens. And, but this important distinction between a multitude of sins that should be overlooked and seeing somebody trapped. Do you, know, do you know the difference? Like you don't nitpick every little thing, but if you see like somebody trapped and you really try to get to the root issue when you're thinking about, should I speak into this situation? Should I intervene in this situation? You wanna be trying to think about what's, what's really going on here and does this rise to the level of someone's trapped or they're just annoying me, right? We find it hard to do, though, I think. Um, it's painful, requires skill, good bedside matter. I love that the word for restore used here in the Greek is the word for setting a dislocated bone. Now, I never played many sports, but I've been around a little bit of seeing somebody with their shoulder popped out or something and putting that back on, and I've watched it on TV shows because my wife loves all those kind of shows, like Grey's Anatomy and all this, and sometimes, ugh. Like, that's a painful thing. Setting a dislocated bone. 
And, and it's, it sort of brings us back into the, uh, this, this kind of word picture of the body with something dislocated that needs to be fixed. So, and I think that that really is Paul's perspective here. When someone's trapped in a sin, it's like the body has a dislocated bone. It's not like, oh, okay, we've got somebody that isn't kind of holding their, up their end of the bargain and they're kind of falling behind and we need to kind of pick them up. No, he's saying the body has a dislocation and someone needs to, someone needs to intervene. Someone needs to intervene because, man, if you've got a dislocated bone, you feel it all through your body. I mean, think about it. Even when you break your toe, like it affects your whole body. Right? You done that? Yeah. I mean, it's unbelievable. Anybody, I've had ingrown toenails a couple times. You ever had that? Goodness. It's unbelievable how that little tiny thing can just disable your whole body. And that's the picture that he has here. But here, here's the thing. And th- when I think about this passage and I, I think about what's the challenge in us really receiving what God has for us in this passage, I think about Western individualism. And, and it, we've got to so be reoriented because you're never going to understand. I'm never going to understand what Paul's talking about. And we won't, we won't really believe that this is something worth getting involved in. The gospel has to reorient us. As a matter of fact, Paul says this in 2 Corinthians. Um, he talks about how God has reconciled us. And part of what that means, it's around chapter 5, is that we no longer regard people or God from a worldly point of view. In other words, from what they can give to us, but how we can serve them. Because we're beginning to actually understand that if Christ lived for us, then the way to live true freedom is to live for others. But if, if you're not convinced of that, if your framework is, you know, I need to take care of me and I need to make sure that I'm getting what I need, like, then you will always put limits on love. And you certainly will shrink back from getting involved when somebody's trapped in a sin. Because you'll, you'll basically kind of do cost-benefit analysis on it, you'll be like, yeah, I don't know if there's much chance that this is going to work and it's just going to be uncomfortable. Maybe this person will hate me. Maybe they'll talk about me to all, my other, all these other friends. You know, I'll get labeled as somebody who puts their nose in where it doesn't belong. There's all these, all these sorts of reasons for us to shrink back unless we're convinced that the body has a dislocation that needs to be attended to. Now, Paul says to watch out. He doesn't say go around looking for opportunities to to kind of intervene in every single case, right? He says, watch out. Like, if you're going to enter into this, you need to understand that you're vulnerable, and I would say you're vulnerable to probably the same sin. Remember years ago, I had uh, these two, two guys in RUF that basically, like, got on each other's nerves like crazy. And, um, the one girl, or no, it was two girls. The one girl just talked a lot. Yeah. She, she just would, like, her way of dealing with fear was just to verbally process and talk all the other time. And, and the other girl, you know, w- w- her basic process was, like, just the opposite. Like, because she didn't want people to kind of reject her, she basically would just kind of not talk about things. And, and, they just, and 
it was fascinating because they both like looked down at the other person. But in reality, what I try to get them to see is both of you are driven by your fear. It just expresses itself differently. You think you guys are different. You actually have the exact same problem. Exact, why are, are you guys laughing? Has Anna Kate told you about this lately? No, this is like somebody 10 years ago, they ended up being in each other's weddings eventually, which was a beautiful, beautiful thing. But it was this sense like so often we think that someone else has a completely different problem than us. They just have different symptoms, right? But, and, and so it's hard for us, we, you know, unless you try to get out, why is this person doing this? When, when he tells us to, to help someone who's trapped in a sin, I think what he's calling us to do is to do some kind of in-depth analysis of what's really going on. Like, you don't do this well if you're like, oh, you just kind of annoyed me there, and I just need to get it off my chest. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about, oh, this seems to be a pattern. I need to think about this. Yeah, it does. And I wonder where that's coming from. Because if I'm going to try to restore them, I know the gospel way to restore is to help people understand what it is they've forgotten about God and the gospel that makes them so afraid and makes them live in this way that's dehumanizing. Like, you have to think about that. You don't just kind of react into that, right, if you want to do this well. But we want to do this well, right? And, we want to, and when you enter into that, you begin to realize, well, I've got those fears. And you may feel, I think one of Satan's tricks sometimes is to say, well, who are you to enter into this? Like, you, you still struggle with fear. It just looks different. You're not any better than them. And Paul doesn't say, you who are better than them should restore. He says, you who are spiritual, which is everyone if you have the Spirit. And he tells you, be careful that you, be, that you not be, you know, envious, right? Which would be thinking of yourself too low, right? They say you're going to confront somebody just to knock them down. No. But also don't think of yourself as above them, as conceited. Because neither one of those will serve you very well if you're trying to restore somebody gently. And then you think about this word gently. Think about this word gently. It's part of the fruit of the Spirit that he just talked about, that we just talked about last week. You need gentleness to restore others. But let me just say this, and I'm preaching this to myself. If you don't have gentleness, it doesn't let you off the hook. Because if you're a Christian, you still have the Spirit. And if you're spiritual, you need to restore gently. So what are you going to do? Well, <laughs> you need to preach the gospel to your heart until you become gentle by the Spirit, because the body of Christ suffers without your involvement. The body of Christ suffers without your involvement. So don't be like, well, I'm just not very good at this, I'm not good. No, seek to grow. Seek to understand the gospel in a way that will make you gentle. Seek to have your eyes opened. Think about people other than yourself to see when someone's trapped. Try to figure out how am I going to be able to restore them Gently. Maybe you can't restore them gently, and you need someone to help. Be careful about gossip, but I think that the fear of gossip sometimes keeps us from saying something when we should say something. But ultimately, gentleness comes from realizing that you're prone to this sin too. Robert Murray McShane, who I named Cooper McShane after this old Scottish preacher whose biography really impacted me when I was your age, he used to say, he said this in his journal. The seeds of all sin are in my heart, 
and all the more dangerously if I do not see them. If I think there are some sins that I am not prone to or I don't have any vulnerability to, that's really dangerous. In other words, you you have to, like I say, see that the person caught in sin is no different than you because you're caught in sin too. But you need to move forward towards people, right? Here's fascinating, the last thing I'll say. Earlier in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, a chapter earlier, Paul said that Christian freedom is based on the fact that we are sons and daughters of God. He went so far as to say that Christ came to make us sons, and the Spirit was sent so we would feel like sons. But what you get from chapter 6 is this important, important insight. You're not an only child in the body of Christ. You are a son with all the rights and privileges and all the security that brings, but you're not an only child. And the body has dislocations that need us to enter in. Let's pray together.